0: We are Awakened Church in Bonesse, and this is our podcast. Welcome. All right, my friends, we are on um, Daniel chapter 10. It's the second last uh, sermon in this series. Uh, If you've been following along, um, I think it's been really meaningful for me and I think for all of us. And now we're in chapter 10, and next week is the last week of the series where 11 and 12 will kind of bring us home. So I'm going to begin. If you remember last week, it was uh, the confession in chapter 9 where Daniel is grieving and he kind of offers this like national collective lament or confession of participation in collective sin and sort of being a benefactor of collective sin. But then in chapter 10, we kind of, it begins with a deeper level of grief before finally this sort of Angel of the Lord appears in this sort of apocalyptic vision and, and offers consolation and hope. And interestingly, um, the consolation that God offers is a lot like a text in Isaiah where God is portrayed as a mother, which is partly why we use the she-her language in the How He Loves Us song. So here is it. And I'm, I'm so excited because I'm kind of preaching off of my PowerPoint right now, and I get to kind of geek out about uh, geography uh, in a part of the world that we're all noticing right now. So, yay, rivers and politics and being the body of Christ in the midst of that. In the third year of King Cyrus of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. The word was true, and it concerned a great conflict. He understood the word, having received understanding in the vision. At that time I, Daniel, had been mourning for three weeks. I had eaten no rich food, no meat or wine had entered my mouth, and I had not anointed myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris. I think this is a very poetic way to introduce this, that he is on the banks of the great river, the Tigris. And he's been mourning for three weeks. And not just mourning like a, like a, like a mild depression. Um, he's not been able to eat. He's not been able to enjoy the things that he uh, would normally enjoy. And he's not been able to care for himself. The Hebrew there of anointing is more like basic self-care, like lotion and, and soap and shampoo. He's just devastated. There's no life left in his bones. And then here he is standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris. So I feel like this is important, and it also helps us kind of as we move towards being a more land oriented people. Um, but in the, the region of Mesopotamia, there are four rivers, four main rivers the Tigris and the Euphrates the Nile River in Egypt, and the Jordan River. You can think of uh, the Jordan River, Palestine, Israel. Um, And here he is in the Tigris River. So you have the Persian Gulf down on the bottom right, uh, and then the little bit of water on the left there would be the Mediterranean Sea. And then the two rivers, the Tigris and the Euphrates, sort of begin up in the mountains in northern Turkey, and they flow all the way through this region, and they join together just before flowing into the Persian Gulf. And the place where they join right there is the ancient city of Babylon. And there's a whole bunch of ancient mythology about those rivers and the power of those rivers. You can imagine every great city in the world is built on a river. Like there's no wealth, there's no civilization, there's no empire without river. Calgary, we we, we live here on the Bow River. Grew up in Okotoks on the Sheep River. You can think of where you grew up. You grew up uh, based on where there was water. And these two massive bodies of water pour into the Persian Gulf. They're making extremely fertile land, extremely wealthy land. And they have this whole mythology that the, the goddess, the chaos monster Tiamat, was slaughtered by their kind of national god Marduk, and the Tigris and the Euphrates are the eternal tears that flow from her eyes. What? And so their mythology is that their god Marduk slays the chaos monster and she weeps eternally into the sea, and her, her tears bring them great wealth. And so here's Daniel weeping tears uh, on the shore of the Tigris. Here's a picture of the Tigris River today. It's a beautiful and uh, majestic river. Another image from above of the Tigris. And then if you go down to the next one, another map so you can just zoom out a little bit and now we're like looking at a map from like ancient times, which we like, I think as evangelicals because there's nothing political. Like it's just an imaginary fun place, you know, like the olden days with like all the car- oh, everything that happened here happened in cartoon, and it was like a, 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 zucchini, or a, a cucumber and a tomato, and it's okay. <laughs> we don't need to have an opinion one way or the other. Um, but you can see uh, this is called the Fertile Crescent. It's highlighted green, thinking lush, fertile soil. And if you notice where the green is in the crescent, it just follows the path of the four biggest rivers in the region. So the Tigris and the Euphrates, and then the River Jordan that flows into the Dead Sea there, and then the Nile River down in Egypt. So the entire biblical history takes place right there. Everything. Moses, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jesus, Paul. It's all happening here. Paul makes it a little bit out of the screen, but he's special. So Daniel would have grown up and come from the Jordan River right there in the middle. And that would be his home river. And they would have obviously their own special stories about that river. But now he is stuck uh, there at the Tigris. And an interesting thing. Here's a picture uh, recently of children playing on the Tigris River. And then the next one is some people this summer playing on the Bow River to see that uh, we are not so different. And if you are an Awakener and you have lived in Bowness and you have gone on walks with me around the river, you have maybe been one of the many of us that have wept on the shores of the Bow River. So the beginning of this chapter, it said that it's in the third year of King Cyrus. And I don't expect you to be paying attention super intensely, but every chapter in Daniel, especially since chapter 7 where the apocalyptic stuff, it begins with the name of a king. It's like during the reign of a king. Like during the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, King Darius, King... Cyrus and you can look at that and imagine a lot of time has passed like the book of Daniel isn't taking place in like two years between King Nebuchadnezzar at the beginning of the book and King Cyrus now Jeremiah's 70 years have passed Daniel's an old man these are the tears of an old man this is the grief of an old man like he's watched empires rise and fall and rise again he has seen terror that was worse than he could imagine and then something hopeful and then more terror He has seen dreams die. And so this theme of kind of Daniel grieving on the shores of the great river is actually a scene that is drawn on throughout the Psalms and throughout all sorts of places in the scriptures. And I'm going to end at the communion table with a time where Jesus does. But you can think in Psalm 42, he says, My tears have been my food day and night, while people say to me continually, where is your God? That contrast of uh, not eating any food and while you're grieving my tears have been my food just as daniel has not been eating or drinking or taking care of himself he's just weeping the psalmist cries out my tears have been my food day and night and the psalms are filled with passages like this which are called the psalms of lament of truth telling i have no doubt that all of us have felt extreme amounts of grief at times in our life what i wonder though is how many people know about it like how many people have just done that all on their own and alone you know what i mean and so in this story, it's cool, like thousands of years later throughout history, Daniel's bringing his pain to speech, and it's reverberating throughout the generations to meet us here in this room tonight. Because he, he grieves, yes, and, and he does not grieve alone. He grieves loudly and publicly. And the Psalms, like the biggest book in our entire Bible, is a majority Psalms of Lament. And the majority of these Psalms of Lament contain zero admission of Guilt. They're not psalms of, I messed up again, I'm so broken, I'm the worst, I'm I'm worthy of nothing. They're these psalms of lament that are like, when are you going to do something, God? What about your promises? You said this wouldn't happen again. And they're, they're, they're these just kind of protests to God, sort of. Walter Brueggemann says a psalm of lament is justifying your life as if to say, This matters, and it should matter, and my pain matters, and I would like to name this. And if God, if you are my covenant partner, I don't understand why you're not doing anything. And this sort of psalm of lament is a psalm of saying, I am legitimate. And so I want to show you probably one of the most powerful psalms of lament, which I alluded to in the land acknowledgement, is in Psalm 137. And here, you'll notice, it is on the same river. This could have been written at the same time as Daniel 10. Or into the same historical setting. By the rivers of Babylon, that's the Tigris and the Euphrates. There we sat down and there we wept. When we remembered Zion, uh, referring back to their home river, the Jordan River, their land. On the willows there we hung up our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs, and our tormentors asked for mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. And then the next part of the psalm, it's it's not a very long one. How could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither. Let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. So he's speaking to his homeland, speaking to the memory of the world before the war, before the trauma, before the crisis. He's saying, I will not forget you. And I can imagine if you were, grew up on the shores of this beautiful Jordan River, and now you're sitting there on the Tigris and the Euphrates, the rivers would look somewhat similar, but also completely different. Have you ever experienced that in another land where it's like, it feels like home, but it's definitely not? Like, there's fami- it's something familiar, and there's a part of you that's maybe like, okay, I could make this home, you know? This could be it. But there's still a yearning for that world before. And so here they are on the, on the shores of that great river, like, How could I forget you? Don't let me forget you, Jerusalem. If I forget you, let my hands wither and my tongue cling to my mouth. I need to remember you, knowing that you may never step foot on that land again. And you're just begging for a memory of that place and the memory of the place as the highest joy. And so this is a psalm of lament, a psalm of sorrow. It's not an admission of guilt. It's just a desperate plea, a a bringing your pain to speech, saying this struggle that we're in matters. And then finally, you'll see um, arguably one of the most violent texts, like no preacher preaches on the last line in Psalm 137, but it's quite a profound cry. The last few verses says, remember, O Lord. So now it's anger. The rage comes out. And if you grew up like me in an evangelical, I grew up in a white Alberta home. (laughs) Um, Anger was bad, especially if you're a girl. And anger is always bad and complaining is bad and, and having sad feelings is bad. And it's sort of the like, why are you complaining? There's people starving and then naming another country or like, you don't have a reason to be sad. And so when I would read this Psalm, I would be like, why is this in the Bible? Like, did someone not notice this was in here? Because it just represents extreme anger and even like violent anger. He says, remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem's fall, how they said, tear it down, tear it down, down to its foundations. Oh, daughter Babylon, you devastator. Happy shall they be who pay you back what you have done to us. Happy shall they be who take your little ones and do to them what you did to ours. And it's like, whew, like this intense kind of pain, individually and collectively. And they're grieving. They're grieving the death of loved ones. They're grieving the death of their future. And they are trying to remember what it was. And imagine trying to remember what it was and not having children to tell those memories to. The futility of that feeling in that place, the futility, what's the point of remembering? Who will I tell my memories to? And that turns to anger and rage. And why should they get a future and we not get a future? Why do they have children? Why do they get to show the children their sacred places and not just tell them about them? And it's this anger and this longing for vengeance. And I think as as Christians, uh, now is the time. Uh, as awakeners, even let's let's not even just as awakeners. Now is the time to reckon with the gift of lament, of that kind of protest, of being the initiator in your relationship with God. The initiator as a covenant partner. So uh, Walter Brueggemann is one of my favorite scholars, and. Some of you nerdy guys, you're like, could laugh at me about that. I'm looking at um, you, Jeremy. Like, no, I'm just joking. <laughs> um, but I love Brueggemann. I, I, will, I, I go to him a lot. And he does a lot of work on lament. He wrote Prophetic Lament in the 1980s, and it like, changed the theological world a bit for a while. But he talks about lament and, and how important it is, saying that it's a demand, it's a protest, it's daring to be an initiator, it's making a case for the legitimacy of your own life. And there's this quote, this is an article he wrote called The Costly Loss of Lament. He says, one loss that results from the absence of lament is the loss of genuine covenant interaction because the second party to the covenant, the petitioner, that's you, has become voiceless or has a voice that is permitted to speak only praise and doxology. Like, do you understand that? I was worried. I was like, is this, this is, we can, this, you, that you're tracking, right? The idea that like, if you're not allowed to complain, if you're not allowed to lament, it's a toxic work environment, right? Like if you're not allowed to tell, complain about your boss, you know, you're not allowed to tell the pastor like, that was way off, then how is it a partnership? How is it a, a safe place? He says if you're not allowed to lament, if we lose lament, then you lose the second party of the covenant. You just have a voiceless person who's only allowed to speak if they're complimenting you or honoring you. He says, where lament is absent, covenant comes into being only as a celebration of joy and well-being. Since such a celebrative consenting silence does not square with reality, covenant minus lament is finally a practice of denial, cover-up, and pretense, which sanctions social control. And so if we are in recovery from a relationship with God where you're not allowed to speak unless spoken to, This text in Daniel 9 says, Come to the river, weep, complain, protest, legitimate your story. And I'm literally going to show you just the next part of this quote. He says, Where there is lament, the believer is able to take initiative with God and so develop over against God the ego strength that is necessary for responsible faith. But where the capacity to initiate lament is absent, one is left only with praise and doxology. God then is omnipotent, always to be praised, and the believer is nothing and can uncritically praise or accept guilt where life with God does not function properly. The outcome is a false self, bad faith which is based in fear and guilt and lived out as resentful or self-deceptive works of righteousness. I don't know about you, but when I read this, I was like, oh, that's exactly it. that's exactly it. The absence of lament makes a religion of coercive obedience the only possibility. The God who evokes and responds to lament is like a mother who dreams with her infant that the infant may someday grow into a responsive, mature covenant partner who can enter into serious communion and conversation. Where there is no lament through which the believer takes the initiative, God is experienced like an omnipotent mother. What is at issue here is a true understanding of the human self, but at the same time, a radical discernment of this God who is capable of and willing to be the respondent and not only the initiator. It's like the ultimate act of humility and self-emptying love when God says, you can initiate. You take the initiative. Cry out. Tell me how you want it to be. You're not my baby anymore. Speak to me like you are my co-creator my co-heir. And together we will dialogue about this. The name Israel means wrestles with God. Fight me. Tell me to take the gloves off. Defend your case, son of man. And the, the psalmist, and here Daniel for three weeks straight, is being the initiator. And it reminds me, uh, Rumi has a quote that says, the cure for pain is in the pain. And the other side of that, I love Henry David Thoreau says, the only remedy for love is to love more. And I think that's the same quote. It's the same quote. It hurts because you loved. So love more. And if you don't go to the hurt, then you're going to love less. And so we need to grieve and be a grieving people. We need to be a covenant people who dares to take the initiative. And so in the next part of Daniel chapter 10, finally, here on the shores of the river at the heart of the pain, in the place of the wound, I looked up and I saw a man clothed in linen with a belt of gold from Ufaz around his waist. His body was like barrel, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze and the sound of his words like the roar of a multitude. I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. The people who were with me did not see the vision, though a great trembling fell upon them and they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone to see this great vision. My strength left me and my complexion grew deathly pale and I retained no strength. And then I heard the sound of his words and when I heard the sound of his words, I fell into a trance, face to the ground. But then a hand. This is the respondent. This terrifying being with like flaming eyes and a voice like a multitude, if you notice the dynamic, is not the initiator in the story. He shows up. He appears, he responds, he reacts as if to say, I notice the legitimacy of your case. And yet the respondent God comes like a mother. But then a hand touched me and roused me to my hands and knees and he said to me, Daniel, greatly beloved. That's just what an address, greatly beloved. Pay attention to the words that I am going to speak to you. Stand on your feet for I have now been sent to you. So while he was speaking this word to me, I stood up trembling and he said to me, do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. I just think in your journey, how lovely. Picture this alternate ending with me where the person or the system or the community or, or, or whatever it is meets you and says, I know you were right. I should have listened, you know what I mean? Like those kind of things, like there's this God speaking, and God's like, from the moment, you've not been wrong. Your tears are not wrong. Your sorrow is not illegitimate. Your anger is justified. Since the first day you set your mind to to, to be human, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. And in the last verse there in that chapter, he says, again, one in human form touched me and strengthened me. He said, do not fear greatly, beloved. He says it again. You are safe. What? How many, okay, this is, I heard so many sermons in my life about how many times God says, do not fear. And so I'm like, all right. And then I go into a very unsafe situation, even just socially unsafe, like to the cafeteria with my Bible. Do not fear. Uh, But I don't remember a sermon on how many times God says, you are safe. See, don't fear because you are safe greatly beloved you are safe be strong and courageous and when he spoke to me I was strengthened and I said let my lord speak for you have strengthened me and then chapter 11 and 12 is the, the resurrection uh, text which comes with both sorrow and, and joy and hope I put the image of the burning bush on the last slide because I wanted to remind us of God appearing to Moses and saying I've heard the cries of my people as if to suggest that sometimes, or at least, at, at least it puts the question out there of, of who initiated the salvation. And so in conclusion, I want to move to the communion table, but I think there's something profound. So in this scene, in kind of the biblical story of trauma, they're on the side of the Tigris River, they're weeping, and they're suffering, and they're trying to remember their homeland, but they, they've lost all their children and their, their elders, and there's just great uh, loss. There's a part of Isaiah that is written kind of contemporary to that time in history, that the second kind of part of Isaiah, and uh, the the gospel writers use that part of Isaiah more than any of the other parts, which means, as evangelicals, we don't often study the other parts. You know, the parts that are gonna be most, you know, point to Jesus, those are the Isaiah parts we know, but we don't know a lot about, say, the last six chapters or something. And interestingly, the last, the third section of Isaiah is written just into this context where Daniel is during the reign of King Cyrus and a little bit after that, and that that third part of Isaiah is just consolation. Uh, the first third of Isaiah is grief and anger and judgment, and it's like so much violence, and it's really hard to read. And then you get this grieving prophet, suffering servant stuff, and in the third part, God comes like a mother, as if to say, I've heard your cry. I've got Band-Aids. You're not going to school today. We're going to watch Price is Right and Wheel of Fortune, and we're going to have chicken noodle soup all day. I love you, and I know you're in pain. Right, that was my childhood there now. And so here, I just want two examples for you. Um, I thought that Isaiah 61 would strike you because the first part you've maybe heard many times and not understood the context of a people surviving genocide and and cultural genocide and dreaming of restoration. And in Isaiah 61, this third part of, of Consolation text, it says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me and he has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a garland instead of ashes and the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. They will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord to display his glory oak is used there because it's a very difficult tree to knock down it's gonna be there a long time because there's good rivers there the planting of the Lord to display his glory they shall build up the ancient ruins they shall raise up the former devastations they shall repair the ruined cities the devastations of many generations and then just a few chapters later at the end of the book of Isaiah chapter 66 the last few verses rejoice with Jerusalem and be glad for her all you who love her rejoice with her in joy all you who mourn over her that you may nurse and be satisfied from her consoling breast that you may drink deeply with delight from her glorious bosom for thus says the Lord I will extend peace to her like a river and the wealth of the nations like an overflowing stream and you shall be nursed and carried on her arm and dandled on her knees as a mother comforts her child so I will comfort you and you shall be comforted in Jerusalem." And when I read this and I think of how these words would have been written during the time of King Cyrus when Daniel 10 is set I wonder if old Daniel missed his mother and if he wondered about her back in Jerusalem or wherever she might be. And so I think it's profound that this comfort and this consolation is a response, not an initiation, to our truth-telling, to saying, look, and I guess maybe it's been obvious, I'm not sure in the, in the images here, but going into the communion table, this week and this last month, there's been a lot of really difficult media to consume around suffering, a lot of death, a lot of uh, sometimes a sense of helplessness just vulnerable people being made more and more and more vulnerable and I read it and I want to kinda of go numb and say it's not, it's not, doesn't concern me, you know. And then sometimes I want to rage and I want to just get really angry at all my relatives. And then I just got to a moment this week where I was able to actually just sit down and cry. And just like, I, I'm, I just felt it and through that grief came a quite a profound prayer and longing and sense of uh, kinship and connection with the people in Gaza who are crying. <laughs> and eating tears for food, because they have nothing else. And so I imagine at the communion table tonight, we could remember the invitation that we have by our incarnate God to be an incarnate, embodied people. And actually, after a meeting uh, with the inimitable Dallas Lowen this week, he said something, that, and I don't know if I told you this, but it struck me. I can't stop thinking about it. It felt like the most profound piece of Christian theology, the way he framed it. Um, I mean, about the communion table, that's how it kind of rang with me. He said, the wound is always in the body The wound is always in the body, which means salvation has to meet us in the body. And then I'm just like, here's Jesus. It's like, this is my body. The wound is in the body. Take and eat. Become what you are. And and this table represents a place of grieving the night Jesus was betrayed and rejoicing the way Christ stands in solidarity with the death of invisible people and and in solidarity with us when we're crying uh, isolation on the shore of the river. So at the communion table tonight, I would like to read to you a poem written by Hiba Abu Nada, 32 years old, written from Gaza on October 10, 2023, translated by Hoda Fekreddin. And there's five pieces. I grant you refuge, and, and she wrote uh, that the I in this poem represents the, the divine I, uh, the, the God. She says, I grant you refuge in invocation and prayer. I bless the neighborhood and the minaret to guard them from the rocket from the moment it is a general's command until it becomes a raid. I grant you and the little ones refuge, the little ones who change the rocket's course before it lands with their smiles. I grant you and the little ones refuge, the little ones now asleep like chicks in a nest. They don't walk in their sleep toward dreams, they know death lurks outside the house. Their mother's tears are now doves following them, trailing behind every coffin. I grant the father refuge, The little one's father who holds the house upright when it tilts after the bombs, he implores the moment of death, have mercy, spare me a little while, for their sake I've learned to love my life. Grant them a death as beautiful as they are. I grant you refuge from hurt and death, refuge in the glory of our siege here in the belly of the whale. Our streets exalt God with every bomb; they pray for the mosques and the houses, And every time the bombing begins in the north, our supplications rise in the south. I grant you refuge from hurt and suffering. With words of sacred scripture, I shield the oranges from the sting of phosphorus and the shades of cloud from the smog. I grant you refuge in knowing that the dust will clear and they who fell in love and died together will one day laugh. We pray, uh, God who looks like Jesus, God who is uh, with us, Emmanuel, I pray that you would s- whisper to us that uh, you are there on the margins, in the shadows of empire and greed, and I pray that we would be a courageous people who would follow you there with our hearts and with our feet. I pray that you would wake us up from numbness and yet give us safety, it feels too much. I pray that you would be like a mother Uh, a safe place for us to weep and dream of tomorrow. I ask that we would be a people who show mercy and ask for mercy. At this table, I pray that you would feed us and fill us. In the name of our crucified Messiah, we pray. Amen. Awaken Church is located in McKinstis, specifically the neighbourhood of Bonas. Most of us are settler descendants who have benefited from the legacy of colonialism and forced assimilation, which continues to harm the people of this land. We are committed to reckoning with our history and taking action towards reconciliation as envisioned by Indigenous leaders and knowledge keepers. Treaty 7 was signed not so long ago between the sovereign nation of the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Stony Nakoda, the Sutana, and the Canadian government. We honor that at the heart of the treaty was a dream for a shared future, and we wholeheartedly believe in this dream. For information on who we are and how you can support the work of Awaken, check us out at awakenchurch.ca. We are also on Facebook and Instagram at Awaken Phone